For September 6th, 2021, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 688. He has completed the side quest to return Winifred's head. Overthinking it, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The Overthinkers are a company of knights embarked on a noble quest. Uh, we're we're uh, your smart, funny knights from the internet. We're never <laughs> never happier than when we're doing deeds of chivalric valor uh, and uh, and what courtesy courtesy um out uh, out there among the uh out there among the the you know the wilds <laughs> out there in the greenwood and then we come back and we have brunch and we talk about it because uh, deeds of valor and feats of strength and and uh deeds of of great courtesy are never are never so so uh goodly goodly won and fair enjoyed by knights as they are when we <laughs> fair enjoy them together i'm matt rather i am here with my fellow knights sir pete of the Fenzel. Hello, Pete. What ho, Matt? <laughs> and uh, Sir Jordan of the Stokes. Hail and well met. Pleased to perform with you, Peter and Matthew. <laughs> <laughs> so, I love uh, it because no one, no one can understand what that joke means, but we get it. <laughs> it's totally good. Um, so, uh, Turns so so uh, this podcast started with with Pete uh, making a statement which is false. Okay. And that, that statement was, hey, I think that the Green Knight movie is on Prime Video. Uh, I did not say that. I oh, said no. I thought it was on Paramount Plus. Oh, Paramount Plus. <laughs> so it's even more false. <laughs> on, Para- on Paramount Plus, perhaps, is the movie. And, uh, and it turned out not to be, uh, but we ended up watching, <laughs> we ended up watching The Green Knight with uh, Dev Patel as Sir Gawain and... Um, and it is an adaptation of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, the uh, the 15th century poem written by no 14th century, right? Late 1300s. 1300s is the 14th century. I, I have to do that every time. Um, the uh, the poem written in alliterative verse in Middle English. We can talk about what all that is, I suppose, um, by an unknown poet, not by anonymous. Anonymous means something different. Yeah. <laughs> Anonymous <laughs> means the person declined to be identified, right? Uh, uh, as, as the film says, adapt- adapted from Sir Gawain and the Green Knight by Anonymous. Well, I, I expected, have expected to see like a Guy Fox mask, uh, at that and like the Green, the Green Knight to say like, uh, we are coming, expect us. Um, the uh no uh, <laughs> we are we are uh, talking about uh, and and uh it is um it we we decided um of course though though this was a uh, an insipid and formulaic action movie just a hack and slash uh extravaganza <laughs> just like action scene after action scene gory bloody you know lurid spectacle piled upon lurid spectacle we decided this being overthinking it uh that we would read the source material as well. So we read uh, different translations and some critical commentary on Sir Gawain and the Green Knight uh, this week, and we're very excited to uh, to have uh, a podcast about it. Now, um, uh, uh, Matt, Matt, on a very <laughs> basic level, one thing you love doing is telling our listeners just incorrect or inadequate information on a very basic level. You're, about you're the so movie right, Pete. You're watched. so right. Sir Gawain and the Green Knight is not on Paramount+. Plus. Yes. <laughs> 
fair, fair. Touche. <laughs> now, Jordan, I, uh, you, you don't come around these parts uh, very often. And uh, at least one thing that I've said is false <laughs> beyond the movie being on Paramount+. Plus. <laughs> Why don't you kick us off and tell us what this film was actually like? Yeah. The, the thing about Sir Gawain and the Green Knight that they might not tell you from the trailer or from the poster is that it is like a capital A art movie. And it's really interesting these days to watch a movie and find yourself whisked away to this ancient, far-off time with its alien values. (laughs) And that time that I'm talking about is the 1970s, because this is the most 1970s movie that I have ever seen. And I I find it shocking that it came out last year rather than like having been in a time capsule underneath underneath like a mall somewhere. Uh, yeah, I mean, um, and, what what were so what are the like the seventies parts of it? Like, what are what are the parts of it that that strike you as being? The, is it because it seems like very auteurish? Is it because it's not not afraid of just doing a lot of like crazy visual stuff uh, that that is non realistic? Like, what are the what are the parts of it that that scream nineteen seventies to you? Yeah, I think Gus wants to know uh, as well. Sort of, yeah, it, it's the balance between. Uh, trying to tell a story in a fairly straightforward way in like individual scenes. So like, you know, there's, there is a, uh, something like a sword fight or something that seems like it's about to be a sword fight for a minute. And that could come out of like, you know, uh, could come out of say Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves or another much more straightforward movie. And then there are scene after scene after scene of Dev Patel, just like looking sad under a tree mm-hmm. and they're great. You know, it's fantastic. But when we say they don't make them like that anymore, like they really don't make them like this anymore, you know, but there, there was a time in the 1970s when they, they did a lot and you can point to, um, before the show, we were talking about that somebody linked Polanski's Macbeth. Uh, you can look at something like, you know, McCabe and Mrs. Miller. It's a very different movie because it's a Western rather than a uh, sword and sorcery kind of thing. But again, it kind of like, it kind of is genre entertainment and it kind of is very, no, very it, yeah, self-consciously. It's a, it's a lot of project. like, who is it? Like Julie Delpy or something sitting in the opium den, like turning over this like rock in her hand and it's filmed so that it, you're just contemplating the texture of this rock for 45 or 50 seconds right like it's not yeah it's atmospheric and it's not sort of not afraid to make you work either um yeah and that's that's i would say yeah that's up our alley even more like there are movies out there that people will make today that will make you work like i would say christopher nolan these days like he definitely wants to make you work but with him like it's a puzzle that has a solution, or at least like you're supposed to walk your way up to a point where he leaves like this one thing unresolved. But most of it, there is an answer. Whereas I'm, I'm fairly certain that with The Green Knight, a lot of that stuff is not, is not thought out in that way. And it's more like you just experience it and let it wash over you and, and feel the feeling. And, and then that's it. And like, it was great. You know, I, I loved it. And I found myself thinking, like, man, why don't they make movies like this anymore? And then I looked at the box office for it, and it's like, oh, yeah, that's why they don't make movies <laughs> like this anymore. Well, because a movie like this has to be super cheap, and then it has to be scalable, right? But, but I mean, not even getting into the, the filthy lucre of this movie, the other – I totally agree with you. When you said 70s, I was like, yes, because one of the other things I associate with the 70s is <laughs> rainy, depressed, uh, kind of revised depictions of medieval Europe. 
Uh, and by rainy and depressed, I don't mean sad in the sense I mean, like the characters are going through something and they've transposed into the personage of the historical, you know, mythological figures, uh, the 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 this sort of like ennui, right? This this sort of ennui that is not unsexed. Right. Which uh, it just may be sort of like, you know, Yacht Rock without a boat. Right. My boat has a hole in it and it sank. Uh, it reminds me the movie. One of the movies it reminds me of, even though it's not very similar in terms of the overall tone, is uh, Richard Lester's Robin and Marion. Because it's this it's it's like we're taking Arthurian legend and we are putting somebody with sort of contemporary anxieties who wouldn't really fit the mold of this kind of legendary heroic figure into it. And we're going to see what this does to uh, change, you know, the sort of meaning of the overarching myth. And by the way, we're also going to cast it with, you know, boffo bomb actors who are going to bring their full interpretation to it and not let their uh, their performance disappear at all, like even for a moment into the story. Right. Um, and like just yeah. just like people with a lot of salty, sweaty, dirty tans. Right. Even even if they're not, you know, <laughs> truly fair skinned people, it's still like, you know, it's like what would what would Robin Hood look like if he was just sweaty and dirty? <laughs> like, yeah. and, and, and it's and, interesting and, because like <laughs> that visual style was picked up more recently by people who are like, yeah, what if it what if it, what if it was grimdark? Right. Yeah. Like what, what if the past was nasty and violent and horrible and there was lots of lots of cool bloodshed? And this is not that. This is like it, it takes that griminess, but then the the mood is something that like we don't really have words for in American English, but probably every European language has two or three for right, like Weltanschmerz, that kind of thing. Uh, and what does that and mean? it's just kind of uh, you know the, the movie that you saw. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> um, got it. So so yeah, like there, there's lots of people who are going through stuff and they're sad, and the fact that the actual things that are going on around them are these fairy tale you know, nonsense doesn't seem to get in the way of them needing a therapist. Right. <laughs> oh, I love it. I absolutely love it. So, so, um, <laughs> that's it. do you want to explain what happens in the movie? <laughs> no, like, no, it's, a basic it's level? not, it's not. I, I mean, people what, just see this, but speaking they of dirty won't. people, they're, they're a little too clean though. Right. Like they're, yeah. they're like, to to a certain extent, the the medieval the medieval sort of setting is right is you know depicted in some sense um, authentically, but I wonder if it's not like quote unquote authentically, right? Like I wonder if there aren't like markers of authenticity, like you know everything is very dark and some people look some people have like a just a really nice smoky eye. They have a nice like uh, eyeliner dyed. I don't know. I just I imagine medieval people as like just pustules just pustules just festering pustules all <laughs> over everyone in the past was unhappy all the time matt nobody yeah. ever had a good time ever <laughs> so like, if, if you if you put this next to game of thrones they will look cleaner right but if you put it next to any movie about the middle ages that errol flynn was in it will seem uh like a like a revisionist truer to life reimagining because it's not so glamorous and it's not so festive and it's extremely extremely not so brightly colored yeah like this, is, this is a great a great movie for for letting you know if you watch it on a laptop like i did that like laptop screens can't handle this because it's getting so much out of such a like limited 
band of the color spectrum mm. that you end up with these like these blocks of pixelation appearing yeah. where like either the compression algorithm or your pixels are just like they're not able to tell those two part those two colors of beige apart. Yeah. But I bet that on the big screen it looks fantastic. Especially crushed like blacks digital like notoriously crushes blacks so that you don't get you don't see as deeply into the shadows because the gradations of the the colors at the darker end of the the spectrum aren't as um you know, aren't, aren't as subtle. Like you can't differentiate. Uh, I, and, and ironically in digital projection, you can't show black because you're projecting light at a screen, right? Like if film on, on film, you can show black by blocking the light on the film that's coming through the, the film. And that's, that's the black. Um, the, uh, you know, I don't know until you get, uh, or I guess like Pete, you have a plasma TV or something like yeah. that. You probably got the best. If you were able to watch this on the TV, you probably got the, the best dark moodiness. Uh, and I definitely, movie. my fr- initial reaction to the first 15 seconds of the movie is, wow, that would have looked great on the big screen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There, there were several moments like that in this. And I should say like all of that sort of darkness and beigeness and, uh, you, you can't watch this in a room with the lights on this, like, sometimes I feel like movies do that kind of by accident, but with this one, it was very calculated. You could tell because there's like five or six moments spaced throughout the film where suddenly it gets real bright and vividly colored. And I, I, I was, I was definitely feeling a little like, Oh man, I wish I'd been able to see this one in the theater. Cause I bet that would have knocked me off my chair. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. so the, the, uh, if you were, you know, watching it at midday in a, in a room with a big window that you, even if you put the curtain in front of it, you can't really block the light. I ended up just looking at a black, you know, LED television screen. Um, just looking at it and, uh, and seeing my own reflection. Which I thought was a bold choice of the filmmaker. <laughs> That's how Space Jam sounded to me. <laughs> that, but with your ears. So uh, let's do what Pete said and say what say what happens in the movie. The movie follows. I mean, follows sort of the, the shape of the poem. So the, fo- the poem is about tw- some, 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 uh, 2,500 lines in this, uh, alliterative verse form where there are generally, there, there are generally four stressed syllables in a line line can be as long as you want it's not like uh, a line of of shakespeare or of chaucer where the the stresses alternate in a regular pattern like to tum 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 to or or like da 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 there once was a man from nantucket right like the stresses alternate in a regular pattern um but the uh uh you could be da 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 da, <laughs> and four. Those are two two valid lines as long as there are four stresses. And in general, the first three uh, alliterate. Um, so uh, it's written. It's you know uh, it's written in in four parts. Um, it combines a whole bunch of tropes of this kind of like legendary chivalric story. Uh, one of them is a um, one of them is the the. Oh, I don't know. I don't even know what it's called. The, 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 the game of blows, <laughs> the, the, game of the, the Christmas game. The, oh, right? the Christmas game. Is that, or, or was that just a thing from the, te- from the, uh, Oh, are you taking what they call it in the movie or yeah, what no, they call it? But what's the form? Oh. There's a, there's a name for like the Ur form that, that it, it comes from. And I the don't beheading know what it is. Game? Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. The beheading yeah. game. And that's, yeah. um, uh, it's different from the pajama game, which is not, <laughs> <laughs> um, so 
so the the beheading game where uh, a knight shows up and challenges you to a fight and says uh, you can strike him howsoever you please, and then in a year and a day he will repay the blow to you. That is to say, he'll he'll hit you back in exactly in exactly the same way. So uh, they're having a they're having a rad party at the round table <laughs> in Camelot, and uh, the Green Knight comes in, uh, and uh, Gaywis is gome geared in green. And uh, he he seems like a slight. Now you're describing the poem here, not the movie. You've yeah. already departed from the movie in several major. Well, because the movie departs like immensely in the first like 20 seconds. That's a but good yes, point. Yes, yes. Yeah, 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 that's a good point. Um, yeah. The uh, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't start with a creepy voiceover. That's the most important <laughs> thing in the poem. It doesn't start with a creepy voiceover. Okay, so the poem in the source material, Christmas time, big feast. In comes the Green Knight. He's miraculous and like super large and like very, you know, very, uh, uh, detailed in his description of the, of the Green Knight, the narrator. And, uh, Sir Gawain says, okay, I'll play this game with you, Green Knight. You can, uh, I'll hit you once today. And then in a year and a day, um, uh, in a year and a day, you can do the same to me. So, so Sir Gawain jumps up, cuts off his head, cuts off the Green Knight's head. It's described as rolling down by the feet. I imagine like a long banquet table, you know, and the shot of just the the improbable with improbable momentum and very little friction, just rolling a very long way. The head of the Green Knight rolling along, um, and it it was at this point where I texted these guys, "Yo, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight is metal AF." Um, <laughs> It's extremely metal. Uh, the Green Knight picks up his head and says, I'll see you in a year and a day to the, to not quite enough amazement from the assembled company, you know, but, uh, uh, that, that's it. And Sir Gawain is going to have to go in a year and a day and, um, see the, uh, see the Green Knight and, uh, you know, take his, take his blow come what may. And, uh, there's so a, there's a fantastic line when the, the knight picks up his head where the, the poet is like, as if nothing bad had happened to him, and like his head hadn't been cut off. <laughs> <laughs> um, he's uh, he's yeah he's he seems unfazed, <laughs> you know. So Gawain sets off. Um, Gawain sets off, and uh, his journey is kind of elided because it's kind of not the point. There's certain things like uh, he he rides past the the Isles of Anglesey uh, is one particular. Um, description that you get, and there are some like place names and some some stuff. He fights a troll or something. <laughs> they just like throw that in there. They're like, there was a yeah. troll, whatever. It's, yeah, I it's think I think the poet the poet does the thing where it's sort of like I'm not going to tell you about all of the wild boars and bears and trolls and giants that he fought, and like it goes on for about a paragraph. Mm-hmm. One, yeah. one of those. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, Cicero, the master of the forum, let me not let me not mention all of the all of the many dirty things that he has done with his sister. I mean, his wife. I'm sorry, I'm always making that mistake. Um, the sorry, that's Cicero, not Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. The the um, the uh, knight comes to a like a large castle with a double moat around it, and he says, "Double moat. What does it?" mean <laughs> <laughs> they lower the drawbridge to him uh he's he's looking for the green knight and says hey uh yeah lord of the castle can we uh can i can you find me the green knight uh i'm looking for the green chapel and the lord says ah yeah 
Green Chapel is just an hour's ride that way. Come hang out. It's Christmas time. Let's park because it's a year later. It's Christmas time again. Let's party. And so uh, th- this is my life. This is my lovely wife and my wife. And he <laughs> <laughs> he uh, invites Sir Gawain to stay um, with him in the castle. This is still the source material. And and they uh, they engage in another um sort of trope of this kind of literature, which is the exchange of winnings trope. So that uh, two people agree to, um, for a set period of time at the end of every day, exchange what they have, what they have gained. And so the, uh, the Lord goes out to hunt and these hunts are described in extremely metal detail. They're super exciting and fun. Uh, on the first day he hunts uh, deer, on the second day, he hunts a wild boar, uh, who is a mean and ornery cuss. And, uh, some of the dogs come out of that one, the worse for wear. And, uh, on the third day, hunts the fox, Trixie Reynard, the fox who, uh, you know, ducks in and out and, and, um, hides in the, in the brambles and, and what have you, uh, until they bring home, bring home the fox. And, uh, every day, um, at home, Gawain, who's resting up and getting his strength for his big, uh, you know, for his big appointment is visited by the Lord's wife, who, uh, is just, she's, she's a member of the horny community and she just straight up, uh, <laughs> she's an Anglo hornarian. <laughs> she's yeah. She's just posting these thirst traps on her Insta <laughs> over and over and over in that his bed. Christmas. <laughs> And the um and by the way, in the future when people start saying, Oh, green you know, Die Hard's the best Christmas movie, you tell them the Green Knight is the best Christmas movie. <laughs> I've got I've got an axe now, my friend. Yeah. <laughs> Merry Christmas. But the uh you know, so um so he, the the wife visit him, visits him in, in his bedchamber and through you know feminine wiles manages to win of him uh, a kiss on the first day, two kisses on the second day, and uh, three on the third day. And also on the third day, she talks about courtly love and the exchange of favors. And Gwen says, no, I can't. I can't do that. I'm not, you know, it's not right for me to get into a whole courtly love situation, um, you know, with the, the wife of the person whose castle I'm staying at. Look, I'm knighting a lot of people right now. I just don't see this becoming an exclusive thing and she's like <laughs> she's like take my belt he actually it's the opposite he says i'm not she asked him but well, was there anyone else and he's like no <laughs> <laughs> it's like this is awkward nope <laughs> oh geez yeah i was hoping this wouldn't go in this direction <laughs> um and she takes of the uh she takes of the uh she she manages to press upon him a uh, a girdle which is a belt um and uh a green belt that is supposed to make its wearer invulnerable and because like you know you're you're sort of supposed to do whatever the lady says and uh in you know this courtly love model and also because he's actually scared that he's going to get beheaded the next day he takes the belt doesn't reveal it to the um doesn't reveal it to the lord of the castle uh no. 
Yeah. To be clear, he does reveal the kisses. Yes. Right? So when the, the Lord comes home from the hunt on day one and says, like, look at all these deer I killed. These are yours now. And Gawain says, well, let me give you what I got. Mwah. Hmm. Right. Yeah. Day two, he brings home and the, the boar. And then mwah, the, mwah. And the Lord is like, oh, you sly dog, you. Where'd you get those? Like thinking he's been like swiving wenches or what, you know, whatever. <laughs> like, and Gawain's like, I'll never tell. <laughs> the, 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 there's a version of this from the Lord's perspective where he's just a swinger. And it's like very, very rudimentary. Right. Where it's just like, so, so you're going to bang him and then I'm going to come home and then I'll bang him. <laughs> like, <laughs> It'd be great. And it's like, what about the Green Knight? Ah, Green Knight, whatever. <laughs> and then and then Will Farrell and Rachel Dratch show up and start saying lava. Lava. No, but this is not like that. The movie wrestles with that a little bit, with the problem of contemporary reference. Sure. It turns Yeah, exactly. But, but anyway, he, sorry, Jordan, He turns continue. he turns to the camera and winks. Uh, yeah. I'll I'll never tell. Um and on uh after the three the three days of the exchange of winnings, he will um uh, night heads to the, uh, Green Chapel, which is sort of a barrow, you know, or like, uh, what, like kind of a dugout underground cave type. Yeah, it's of- like where Luke Skywalker goes to fight Darth Vader and the Empire Strikes Back. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's notable in that like places all of the places that the that they've been so far Camelot and this like magic castle in the woods the uh, the poet like stops for a couple of stanzas just to talk about them in all their detail and then when he gets to the green chapel it's like two lines it's like it's a big hill it's green there's a like dark door leading into it and Gawain's like I guess that's a chapel and that's it. So it's sort of like in in its absence of description actually comes across as sort of very notably mysterious, I feel like. Right. Like, because all of a sudden you're in the beginning of Zork and you're not in this like uh, (laughs) (laughs) elaborately. There is a green knight here. (laughs) What do you want to do? Behead green knight. (laughs) The knight's head falls off and rolls and rolls and rolls and rolls and rolls down the long banquet table. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, uh, the, um, you know, the, the, keeps his appointment. They, uh, he, you know, kneels down, green knight raises his sword to bring it down on his head. He flinches. The green knight says, ho, ho, you flinch. Did I flinch? (laughs) Ho, ho. Uh, when you, uh, when you cut my head clean off, it's like, no, I'm sorry, Mr. Green Knight, sir. I won't flinch. And then the, the, Knight uh, takes another swing, uh, doesn't, doesn't hit him. Um, seems like he's just kind of playing with his food. And then, and the third time he like cuts him a little bit, cuts him a little bit on his neck. And, uh, turns out that, uh, the Green Knight and the Lord from the castle, the, uh, the, the Will Ferrell swinger Lord, uh, (laughs) are are the same person, (laughs) are the same person, um, and that he's been on some sort of like magical test kind of, uh, magical test kind of situation. And, um, yeah. And, uh, they go, they go back and have a, have a lot of fun and yeah. uh, by by not and oh and that that the the respect in which he failed the test is that he took from the wife a like a special token a you know a uh, a commemorative belt um that that he was not supposed to take <laughs> well he was supposed to give it as part of the exchange of winnings oh right right, right? and he doesn't he doesn't reveal it because the wife makes him promise 
He's he, the, in the poem. It's like an elaborate overlap of different systems of courtesy and sure. honor, right? Where like he's the Lord. He promises the Lord to do whatever the Lord says. The Lord says, let's play the stupid game. And the guy says, I have to do it. I promise to do whatever you say. And he's like, by the way, here's my wife. Hang out with her, right? Do whatever she says, right? <laughs> and he's like, oh, she's a lady. You know, I have to do whatever she says. And I can't be rude to her because I'm a knight. And then she's like, she asks, she like, they go around, the, they beat around the bush about her wanting to have sex with him. And he finds various clever ways to say no. And then at the end, it's like, well, you're supposed to give me everything that, that she gave you. And it's like, she tells him not to tell his husband, her husband. And it's like, there's like four different vows that are all bound up in this act of like, okay, well, I have to obey the wife, but I have to obey the wife because the husband told me to obey the wife and the husband, I have to obey the husband also, but also I'm a knight and I have to tell the truth. Right. And also like, you know, it's sort of what's what obligation is being this is not what the movie is about. No, it's not. This so, is like so, what the Yeah, I mean yeah. I've said well it's I I just noticed that their their you know relationship proceeds in an opposite manner to a lot of online dating where she's like, May I send nudes? And he's like, No, no, don't <laughs> send nudes. And she's like, No, I really want to send no, don't send the nudes. And then right. then he gets a then he gets a belt. All right. right. I've <laughs> right, right. She's like, Oh, if I can't send you my nudes, at least let me send you my under. I had to look up girdle. I, I was not, you know, I was not sure whether it was an undergarment, but it, it does mean a it belt. Was it's like, it like was a- Sir Gawain's green Spanx. <laughs> um, it's like a, like a sash or like a, yeah. you know, um, sort of thing that you tie around the outside of a, of a larger garment to kind of cinch it cinch it in all right i've i've spoken enough how does the i mean we could talk about the poem probably for three podcasts but let's not how does how does the film depart uh depart from this pete do you want to just give us a a, yeah i'll be real i'll be real quick about it he's not a knight that's Uh the biggest one right is that like he's not a knight he's not chased he's he is a dude who is the he's a he's like a noble he's a nephew of king arthur right and so He's going he's, out there with He's Podrick Payne, sexual tyrannosaur. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And so he's so it's it's played much more existentially and much more expressionistically. It feels a lot more 70s. It feels a lot more 19th century German, right? It's like he's he is not this great hero he wants to be. And so he goes on the quest sort of thinking it's what knights do. And instead of the adventures all being alighted between where he leaves and goes to the green chapel, they depict a bunch of the adventures and they pretty much all go badly for him. Right. Like in one way or another, they either bad or they're disenchanting or they're scary. Right. Um, and I, we go into well, and we will. Right. And, and so a lot of it is about the terror he feels at his inevitable death of being beheaded by the green knight. And there's this whole eco message to the film about this superiority of nature to civilization. Right. Which is that like, you know, and, and particularly civilization is embodied by Arthur's Christianity and nature embodied by uh, Morgana Le Fay and her pre-Christian witchcraft that she practices in this in this thing. Because she's his mom and blah, blah, blah. But the point is that the big differences are he's not a knight. He can't defend himself. He gets constantly kicked around and he finally gets where he's going sort of as a drifting wanderer and is scared and broke. And he actually, I think. I don't think they have sex, but he like he does uh, uh, have a commit. He does perform a sex act with the wife. Right. I believe that that happens and is depicted in gory detail. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. yeah, I think and, it's it's interesting because in the poem, the the hunt scenes are. I mean, Matt, you said they were action packed earlier. They are they are torture porn. They are like they are Eli Roth's uh, scene of hunting for sure. And it's extremely extremely graphic about you know the way that they butcher the animals after and like they, you know they ripped out the lungs and split the fat and the blood was here and there and like the the fox gets stomped to death by a horse. It's all this stuff. And then the I think this is scene, what this is what we care. This is what we we I think this is a sensibilities thing because it's like yeah. the the hunting scenes are torture porn. But they're also just hunting scenes. They're just, you know, like it's, uh, it's literally depicted. Like it's not, it's not particularly gratuitous though, though it is true. The treatise on the nine types of deer fat and the like, the, the like the extra good fat around the kidneys, the call fat, you know, that was, that was a lot. It was, it was detailed, but I, I wonder if it's like our modern sensibility that makes it seem like it's, uh, like it's sort of malevolent in, in, in some way. But, uh, sorry, I, I'm, I'm knocking you. I'm derailing the point that you want to make. Which they're is, both right. You're both right. It, yeah. Again, I think it's definitely like, how do you react? I think it probably is, how do you react to people who kill and eat animals? I was, right? I was sort of hungry after all of those three <laughs> hunting scenes. But instead of having in detail hunting scenes, they instead sort of give, uh, Gowan a, a talking fox companion. Right, who kind of guides him through the wilderness? Who isn't rather than depicting him in the hunting scenes, right? But Jordan, yeah. you're, you're yeah. about to make sorry, a point saying, that sorry, the, Jordan, you were going to talk yeah. about the sex scenes. Yeah, well, sorry. I was going to say that the sex scenes in the poem are like it's very coy, and if you wanted to read it one way, you could say that Gawain just turns her down, and then they like gently kiss you know, once at the end of each interaction. Or you could say, like, well, they clearly had full-on penetrative sex all three days, and it's just elided because that's the way that it's elided in courtly love literature. You know, so it's uh, kind of it gets reversed here. The hunting scenes are all off-camera. Uh, there's not any uh, any butchering of animals. But the uh, the sex scene is, uh, there, there are bodily fluids that you don't generally yeah. see. Uh, there, there's a, I was about to say, there's a bodily my, fluid that, uh, that I, I'm not, I'm not sure I recall seeing on, on screen really in this type of film. In this type yeah. of film. There are other types yeah. of films that show it a lot. <laughs> yes. um, uh, but yeah, I mean, so, Jordan, that's a, that's a great point. It's like, is this like a Hays Code musical where it's like when the two, when, when Gene Kelly dances with the girl, you're supposed to understand that they've done it or something. And that's not, uh, yeah. I don't know. That's that's not a. I hadn't sort of thought about that because, I, and it's well, like yeah. it's part of part of the convention is that it's deniable, right? Like they, it's not as if it's um definitely the case that they did, but definitely as like a reader in that style, you would look at it and be like, well, you like did they or didn't they? Mm. So it's kind of yeah. kind of left vague. Yeah. Um, and then in the movie, absolutely not. In the movie, like that part is uh, is made explicit. The hunting is made vague. Yeah, and so, so the, the the long and the short of it, I think, is at least because we can go back and, and drill down into the specifics of each of these individual differences. Um, also, Gowan has a girlfriend, right? Which is which is very different, right? He has a girlfriend back home, and then there's this whole there's a lot of Freudian extra Freudian stuff where like the girlfriend is also the wife, and the mom is also the like the witch, and and all this stuff going on. It's it's more it's more seventies in that respect. Um, yeah, so like the, the the heavy-handed Freudian stuff is another thing that screams out seventies. I feel like you don't usually get like that much of just like unreconstructed Freud in movies today, even when they're trying to be psychological. Yeah. Like in the movie, the mo- his mom gives him the belt at the beginning, 
And it's this belt is the thing that he also is going to get later from the woman who kind of almost it's depicted forces him into sex with her. Right. It's well, not not like it's it's a it's a it's one of those dodgy situations where it's like, I don't feel too good about this, but I don't think I'm supposed to. Right. Where she like pressures him and pressures him to do it. Um, yeah, yeah, she yeah. she very uh, pointedly extracts consent. Like yes. she she says like tell him to, like tell me you want it, and he does eventually say it. But like he's not cool with the thing for but sure. But the idea that's like well, his mom gave him this, and then this woman gave him this. It's weird. Um, but- <laughs> he kind of he kind of flags that right when yeah. she's like, here's the girdle, and it's like I made it. He's like, wait, you made this right. Like, just so we're clear, you made this belt. This is not the belt that my mom made. <laughs> he doesn't say that second part, but the way that uh, that Dev Patel reads the, like, you made this line is, uh, like, you can tell that that's what he's thinking. Yeah, and we're not just relishing in the ways in which this movie is is risque, but but the the, the ultimate ending is very different, right? Where Whereas in the poem, the Green Knight gives uh, Gowan a little nick to remind him that he isn't perfect, right? And he made that sort of small lapse. But in this one, he's going to get his head chopped off, right? But they do a, like, occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge where – and that's what I always think of. What's the example you guys always think of for this kind of story? Um, no, that's the one. I mean yeah. – Like there's one in, in the Ballad of Buster Scruggs, I think, also maybe. Um, or, or maybe it just looks like – no, it just looks like one. It, does, it isn't quite one. It's the James Franco one is kind of a play on that. Um, but yeah, it's like you, he's being, he's getting his head chopped off and he has a vision of his whole future life and the sort of evils of being a king and the sort of sadness of being committed to war as your practice of your life and all the betrayals it will cause him to make against the people he cares about. And it sort of causes him to kind of reject his future and accept that he should die now. Right. And it's, it has an ambiguous ending where he both gets his head cut off and doesn't get his head cut off because you see the future and his head just sort of spontaneously falls off once all the bad things happen to him in the future. And he goes back and it's like, oh man, I haven't had my head chopped off yet. And then it's like, okay, I'm ready. And then the movie just ends. Right? Off with it, yeah. off with your, off, off with, your, with head. your head. Yeah, yeah. So it's Schrodinger's head really. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. What's, uh, what's going on by the way there with, uh, with his head just falling off is, um, this this is a a like a ghost story that you may see circulating. Yes, it's from where, Scary Stories and Tell in the Dark. Yes, yes. it's yeah. the girl with the green ribbon around her neck. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So like at some point, uh, the the filmmaker lost track of the idea that he was adapting Sir Gawain and the Green Knight and decided he was adapting just like heads being cut off in general. There's a there's a whole <laughs> whole episode with the the Welsh martyr Saint Winifred who was uh, beheaded when she decided that she was going to join a nunnery rather than marry some guy, and uh, a magic healing spring sprang up where her head fell. Uh, one of the chapters of this movie is like uh, like an encounter with Saint Winifred, and I, I as I was watching, I was like like all right, pause. Look, I did the background reading <laughs> that I was assigned to do. <laughs> Now I have to go read about St. Winifred. Thanks. <laughs> but yeah, so um, at the very end in this, like, he, he imagines what would happen if he ran away, right? If he, if he just booked, uh, then he would go home. He would inherit the kingdom from Arthur. Eventually, though, like, the the opposing army is, like, battering down the door into his throne room. He's all, all alone. He reaches into his robe, takes off the green invincibility belt that he has, right? And when he unwinds the green ribbon, then his head falls off, like the girl in that, uh, the girl with the ribbon around her neck. And it is a green ribbon in that story. Um, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I believe so. Yeah, and scary stories to tell in the dark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The girl with the green ribbon. Yep. Um, 
Yeah. And the interesting thing about that scene at the end, I mean, you know, I, I think this is, it's, um, there's two times in the movie actually when Gawain dies and then is like, well, on the other hand, perhaps not. Right. So one is, in in that part where it's in the stuff that in the poem is just alighted, like he had a bunch of adventures on the way. Uh, one of them that they show in much detail is he gets like jumped by a bunch of uh, of peasants who t- like uh, take all of his stuff and tie him up and leave him in the woods. And there's this amazing shot where the camera is like on him struggling and it does a full 360 degree pan. And as it does, you see like the 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 woods going through spring, summer, winter, fall, like the, the seasons are, are churning and it pans back and his bones are just tied up there. And then it's like, so this is what happens, right? He's, he's a skeleton. He's a skeleton. He's become, yeah. he's like, he's decomposed. He's died and decomposed. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, like he, he and not died, like one of the cool the... singing and dancing ones, like yeah. <laughs> yeah, one of the lame ones that that just represents the loss of a human life. Yes. Um. So like he, he died of exposure in the woods, and that was the end of his quest. And then the camera pans back around, reverse three sixty, all one shot, and he like starts to worm his way over to where his sword is left on the ground and like cut his ropes with it. So that one is kind of like this is what will happen if you don't fight. Right. If you don't do anything, then you're just going to die. And that's what inspires him to do something. And then at the end where he's like, he's come up to the Green Knight and there's this amazing line where uh, he, he says, like, wait, is this all there is? And the Green Knight says something like, what else did you what else should there possibly be? Right. What else would there ever be? Um, and then he like there's a moment where the the hallucination starts or something. And of course, you don't know at the time, like it's presented as just what's happening. And he runs and he goes all the way back home and he lives this whole sort of really morally, morally depraved life, not in the sense that he's like a tyrant or a Caligula, but just in the sense that being a medieval king and being a sort of failed man, right? And this is a movie that's about capital M manhood, I would say, another 1970s thing. Um, he he then lives to the end of that life, and then still he dies. So that's what happens if you do fight, right? Like, if you don't fight, then you'll die here. You better fight. Wait, if you do fight, you'll also die, right? So the, the, those are these are like the two sides of the coin. Um, if Gawain goes and sees the Green Knight, he will have his head cut off. And if he refuses to do that, then he will still die. So then, given those choices, like, what do you do? And the movie just ends rather than answering it. Sure. Yeah. I mean, the the getting Winifred's head out of the... Um, uh, is, an, is another one of these, out of the lake. Like... Uh, Right. Like she said, her head was um, her head was what in a lake. I don't know. It's the the details depart a a little bit from, you know, the uh, the traditional story of of St. Winifred, who who was beheaded, I think, by by the person she was engaged to marry when she said she wanted to be a nun instead. Um, This is a slightly different thing. And her head has fallen into a lake and he's got to go retrieve the head. And there is this like, there is this, you know, underwater scene. And I thought it meant like, oh, it's like under a rock in the brook or something like that. And let me like wade in a couple inches and like, you know, pick up the skull. But no, it's like deep underground uh, or deep underwater and then also under underground under the sand at the bottom of the lake. And, you know, it's one of these like diving in and like swimming very deep um, yeah. 
type Epic of, of Gilgamesh kind of scenes. Yeah. And, and the, it's one like where he's underwater enough and the, and the water is kind of otherworldly enough. And the, like the light changes <laughs> enough times underwater where it's like, okay, this is like, this is another like, you know, water baptism, reborn rebirth kind of, uh, kind of scene or like, you know, cu- coming out of the water. Like the person who comes out of the water is sort of different than the person who, uh, who went into the water or, or something like that. So it's another, it's another one of these kind of rebirth uh, situations. And at that one, the thing, you know, the thing that he gets uh, at the end is that when he has uh, completed this side quest to return Winifred's head, um, he, his, uh, his ax is back. His weapon is back. Um, You know, he's, it just appears in the, the, uh, the Winifred cottage. And, um, you know, and, and he can go, he can go again. So it is, I mean, it is like these things are all, it's, it's, it's a film that's operating on the symbolic realm, uh, a lot, you know, without, without necessarily really being concerned with, um, too much of what the, of what the actual story, I mean, of what, what a realistic story might be. Yeah. Maybe the chief example of that is the way in which the, uh, the Christian and pagan stuff is juxtaposed mm. because there's sort of a, a vague Celtic. So it's not, it's not Celtic. It's Indian because it's Dev Patel. Right. And so all of the people who are associated with the ma- the sort of witchcraft magic, which is depicted as the sort of uh, Druidic stuff, except it's, it's like subcontinental or middle Eastern Druidic. Right. So, so it's like the stuff that, is the in the King Arthur story, it would be Celtic magic juxtaposed against Christianity and and, and Merlin, right? And sort of scholarly magic of Merlin, I guess. Um, and uh, but in this story, they also add a dimension where all of the people who are practicing this witchcraft stuff are people of color in Camelot, right? And every and literally every other person in Camelot is white, right? So it's like the witches are all dark skinned and are kind of casting these spells from the ancient magics to kind of upend the social order. And so it's there and it's symbolic. But is it really about, you know, India and Britain? Is it, you know, it, not really, you know, it, it's it's uh, it's just it's painting in, in these kinds of evocative strokes that don't correspond strictly to a particular sort of allegory. I would say, I don't know, Jordan, did you have a similar reaction to that or? I mean, yeah, it's, um, I don't think that the, like the racial stuff was quite as, um, it wasn't really quite as tidy as that. Like it wasn't a hundred percent of the people in the sort of the coven. And also there were like, if you, if you look at the extras in Camelot, uh, they, they did the thing that you'll, you see, uh, quite often nowadays where it's just sort of like they, uh, they consciously tried to cast people from lots of different, uh, different backgrounds, um, just without like, you know, so, so you don't have the monochrome Europe. Right. 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 Um, but maybe it's but just the still, color palette of the film that was a bit monochrome then. And I missed yeah, it. <laughs> sure. 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 <laughs> but like, but, but in broad strokes, you are right. Like, uh, all of, all of the people who have lines in Camelot. Right. And, and like the, definitely the, the largest, uh, contingent, of, of people with darker skins that you see is uh, Morgana Le Fay and her circle. So like, yeah, there, there's something going on there. And there's also like sort of lined up with that. There's almost a like 
technology versus nature thing, which you were talking about a little bit, like the um, the superiority of nature to civilization. It's not really superiority in the sense of that, like one ought to choose the other one over the other, but rather just the the notion that like eventually civilization will crumble into dust and the natural world will will conquer over it, right? Like uh, the, the cockroaches will outlive us, that sort of thing. Um, the the lady of um, of uh, ho, ho Desert is the name of the castle, right? Yes. There's some hoes in this Desert. Uh, <laughs> she she has this incredible speech about why the night is green, uh, which is not found in the poem and is, I think, my favorite thing in the whole movie. Um, and basically, she talks about the idea that uh, that what what's the line? It's like green isn't red is the color of love green is the the color of what's left afterwards in the womb and in the heart uh and this very degree will conquer over like all of your your castles and so on it's a it's a real it's a real like stem twister you know watch the movie and see it but uh what's interesting to me is that like that is nowhere in the in the source material in the right. poem and i wonder if that's because like although clearly the poem is is written by somebody who thinks of themselves as living in modern times versus the ancient past of when King Arthur was around, like that notion of like a conflict between the natural world and the the world of civilization is maybe something that they didn't really have to deal with too much because from their point of view, nature was just not a thing that you could conquer. You know, like the natural world was was still just there. The old growth European forest hadn't all been cut down yet. Whereas you see this movie and like it's not always there in the dialogue, but it's there in the images all the time. You, there's like he'll be riding through the forest and then he'll come across this place that has just like been clear cut. And you'll see like the last tree in this uh, this once forested swath of land, like get cut over and fall down as he's riding past it randomly. Um so I don't know. Did, did anyone have any thoughts about the sort of the nature versus culture part of it? Yeah. Uh, oh, sorry, Matt. Did you want to jump in? Just to just to say that you're. I think you're absolutely right that it's completely not a a concern a concern of the poem. I mean, I think the poem. I think we can say other things about the poem, but but Pete, what you go first? Oh well, I was going to just remark that one of the great lines in the movie that I really liked is when King Arthur calls Gowan to sit next to him and he asks Gowan to tell him a story of him, right? Because King Arthur regrets that they've been hanging out for as long as they have and he's known him since he was a baby, but he doesn't really know anything about him, right? And I felt like this was something of an, because it's written and directed by the same guy, right? It's an auteur piece and another way in which it's very 70s. And, and it's like, People, people who are your age now, I don't know what you think. I don't know what you think about the world. I don't know what you what you do, what you've done, right? And and so it felt to an extent like the ways in which this story so drastically departed from what you would expect from an Arthurian story were serving a similar function of a person who is around that age now, trying to talk to their parents or grandparents about what they think about their future prospects for the world. Right. It, it's sort of how it felt. Right. Like, you know, there's this very urgent sense that the natural world is is in its death throes, but the human world is also in its death throes. And there's just death throes everywhere you go. Um, and there's definitely things that are so different. I mean, the other thing I just wanted to remark on is that there are certain things in the poem that are, I think, assumed and never talked about. And uh, and I think that's not really a secret. But but I mean, one of them is 
that King Arthur's knights or that knights in general are very incredibly capable of killing of killing people. Right. And so, like, the poem never really shows Sir Gawain having to stab somebody on the road. But when Dev Patel Gawain meets these children on the road, he gets just straight up robbed by them. And it's like, dude, Sir Gawain would have, like, fought in multiple wars. He has probably killed dozens of people. Right. He would kill these children. Right. Like, straight up immediately. But they don't talk about that in the courtly, knightly, <laughs> right, like uh, the courtly love stories. Right. Um, what is it like to actually venture through the woods by yourself uh, is more modern, I think, in the in the uh, movie, because he would have known even he would know whether he was capable of doing this. I think in the, if he lived in the time frame he was in, he would know whether he could actually go and travel 100 miles by himself outside of the castle walls. And he would just bumble around like he does in the movie, right? Which I guess is cruel, but it's because how, that's how it feels to travel in the modern day uh, without a car, right? Like sort of on foot, on public transit, on your bike or whatever, that the world is just very big and can kill you in a whole bunch of ways. Um, yeah. And so, yeah. It's, uh, it's like both both psychologically and physically, especially in that scene with like the, the urchins who rob him. It's like he's one real modern person dropped into this world, right? So like right. both both dropped into sort of the 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 union symbolism landscape of it, and also dropped into like what it would be like to try to make your way through medieval Europe. And it's like he it's like he has no idea, right? right. Uh, that that maybe this uh, this random kid who seems quite quite feral can possibly be trusted. He's just like, yeah, I'll take that shortcut you mentioned. Nice one. Great. <laughs> if you think about that. it, it's the exact opposite of Monty Python and the Holy Grail, right? Where King Arthur is the only one who's like, from. I mean, there are other ones too, but it's like the core people in the story are the ones who are from Arthurian legend and everybody else is like from the 60s. Mm, right. <laughs> and right. that's the yeah, absurdity yeah, yeah. of it, right? Whereas if you flip it around and you make the main knights the only modern people, it's very scary. <laughs> like, it's, right, it's, right. It's, it, it's also also interestingly the opposite of a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's court, right? Ooh. Where you have the one modern person who in, instantly runs things. Whereas this is, I think, much more realistic <laughs> that the one modern person is like sad and afraid and alone. <laughs> It's, I was going to say, man, they should really do a film adaptation of Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court, but I never remember. There's like a hundred of them, <laughs> up to up to and including Black Knight, starring Martin Lawrence, which is great. <laughs> which is a great movie. But alone, you know, the word the word alone there is, I think, sort of on point because everyone everyone is well, I guess in Camelot, but like uh, out in, in in the castle. Um, like it's just these three people. It's like the sense is like that they have a uh, that they this is their vacation house and they're only there for a week out of the year and no one else is there. The the um you know the the lord and his wife and then the the creepy um you know chaperone figure, uh, blind chaperone figure whom you know we we haven't mentioned really yet. Uh, would, that would take even that house, even at that modest level, would take some like you know domestic work to run, and so there's probably unseen servants. I, I I also wondered how medieval per se that particular house was. It seemed like oh, it wasn't. It was yeah. like Downton Abbey. Yeah, yeah. it's well, yeah, may, and maybe not, not quite, quite, not quite yeah. the 20th century Downton Abbey, but like the 18th century would not have right would not have been. 
uh, probably wrong, uh, would not be totally out of the question. And that, that like, um, but, but in the, you know, in the poem, it's like, it's a big castle and it's, you know, it's the, it's like Winterfell, right? Like there's, there's a lot of people there all the time and you get the sense that the castle is not just, you know, the home of the, the, like the Lord of that particular area. The, um, it, it's also kind of a market town and it's a like, uh, administrative center. And there's just a lot of people there who need to do things. Plus it's Christmas. So there are like, there are guests staying and like people come in, you know, whoever the, like the vassals of this particular Lord would be or like come in for the, for the feast. And so there's a sense that like, there's a lot of people around. And when, when the, the guy goes out hunting every day, like he goes with a big party, you know, and it's described like the beaters and the games, people and the you know and then the other the other nobles who are on horseback and hunting and like when Gawain stays home to like preserve his strength with the ladies it's not like he's alone in the house with Miss Miss Thang he's he's actually like in the company of like a lot of a lot of women all all around which is why it seems you know it's possible to be it's possible to sort of conceal the whatever the the amorous um aspects of of the goings on might be uh just because there's there's a big crowd but then also it's like it's less lonely and it's a party right like it's a the whole thing is a party atmosphere and and like just remember it's a christmas poem you know it's the it's the uh it's a feast it's you know it's meat meat and mead and stuff and that 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 atmosphere it's just that's not the the that's not the concern of the filmmaker whose name i really should have looked up before uh uh, before we <laughs> before we started of the writer director of of the green knight the idea the idea in which like i don't know the the gawain seems like a, it's a a sort of investigation it's a kind of like um uh, domestication is maybe the wrong word but it's a sort of importing into the the milieu of the day of of you know sort of chivalric um courtesy and the kind of the the knightly ideal the sort of code and conduct which are you know pre-christian or at least pre the spread of of christianity to everywhere and like have their roots in like older um and you know older things that had been kind of rejected by the by the society by the time you get around to the 14th century and uh like but can we do that can we can we like write it seems like it's about how can we write a version of society that has this um even though, uh, you know, even though these things are, are, um, are very ancient, can we, can we, you know, I don't know, conceive of a version of these virtues that is compatible with our Christian ideals and compatible with, um, uh, our society. Whereas the, the thing in the movie is, can we, can we like, can, can we claw our way from day to miserable day by the bloody stumps of our <laughs> fingernails, praying only for sweet death to welcome us in her cold embrace? I mean, I, I would say more simply also that the poem is about loving being alive and, and being in conflict with your obl- other obligations. And the movie is more about f- being afraid of dying. Like, yeah. like it's sort of more fixated on death and less fixated on the loss of life. Right. Um, the party. And, yeah, the part, yeah. The, and it's uh, I think Jordan pointed it out as we were kind yeah. of 
uh, prepping that like the party seems like a party in the first, mm-hmm. you know, in the first one. It seems super, uh, I believe the word that you used, Jordan, was rad. And indeed it does. <laughs> <laughs> indeed it does. Like you're, talking about, you're talking about the party at, at, our, the party at Camelot at, Camelot at yeah. the beginning, right? Yeah. But like, but also, also the party that they have next Christmas at the, at like the Magic Castle. Right. Both of them are like, are epic ragers. Um, and in a way it's like, you know, part of it is just like the poem is way happier, way, way happier than the movie is. It's a, a very happy poem for all that it gets bloody and scary sometimes. Um, and the the movie is very sad and depressive. I mean, excellent in, in all ways. I don't think it, it doesn't like make you sad to watch it. But it's um it's a it's one that's like about sadness. And ooh, and on me, that's another one to put next to 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 Veltschmerz. Veltschmerz. <laughs> Jordan, do you want to talk about the music? You had a bunch of thoughts about the music in this movie, and I don't want them to get lost. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I, I should write them up. Like, that's my day job, right? But um, <laughs> Oh, yeah. Maybe. You don't, don't, just give a taste. Just the, yeah. the first taste is free. So, like, the, the score is fantastic. I think that um, that the composer and the director work together a lot. And it's it's very loud and in your face all the time, which is also kind of a 1970s filmmaking thing more than it is a modern one. And like the the thing that it does most prominently, I think, is that there's sort of two different ways of moving through time that the music has. It either has these sort of floaty textures where it's almost like the role of music is to stop time and you're just kind of there in the moment, which extends as long as it needs to. Or it does this very, very regimented kind of like ticking clock effect of one sort or another. And when it does that, it's often lined up with something in the like the rest of the soundtrack that is ticking in the same way. So like uh, the the first not the first scene in the film but the first scene like outside of sort of the framing after after the creepy voiceover and so on uh, is Gawain waking up in a brothel which if you've read the poem is uh, is a sort of like whoa we're not in Kansas moment um, he, he's waking up in a brothel and the music is doing that ticking clock thing and there's also water dripping from like the roof onto a flat rock outside with this kind of like tick way and there's a uh, like a few times in the film that that happens so like uh, my, my thoughts are kind of half-baked at this point but in some way that like the notion of time that progresses and can be counted off into seconds and minutes and hours versus time that just sort of is and like you move through it but you don't think of points being further forward or backward in it like where the the world sort of turns around you and the seasons have their they like they come and they go and they turn like a wheel that 360 degree shot in the woods where his bones come up right all of that like in in some way that maybe lines up with this struggle between like civilization and technology and christianity versus like the woods and the the pagan magic and and the green knight and death i guess i think it also so that's the yeah, yeah. I think I think there the the connection that I made you know when you were talking about that earlier as we were prepping was was to an idea of like of time is experienced by a young person versus time is experienced by an old person D- like do you, 
do you do you remember being very young and you know i don't know like the drive to the ice cream shop seeming interminable or like you know i don't know the month of may you know all the time all the time between spring break and the end of school just seeming like it it dragged on forever where you could sort of feel the thud like a an appreciable thud with every move of the second hand on every clock in the world and it just seemed like nothing would ever happen quickly enough versus you know versus being older and like get it, you know, getting into middle age now. I've I have had the experience where it's like, oh, you blink and you're this age, and then you blink again and you're five years older, uh, and you blink again and and like the circumstances of your life have changed in in some sort of in some sort of significant ways. And I mean, one one thing music does, one thing sound and I suppose camera movements as well do in in films is make you experience the passage of time in in a certain way, and like the 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 two times and kind of like demarcating all the 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 you know little compartments of time all the the little minute units uh of time versus this you know this dissonant this dissonant choir where the 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 pitches that the the like the weird lady choir is singing change but you realize later you don't you don't feel the change happening you realize later you know that that it's that it's changed you know is the thing and it it does relate to to the kind of the, a quote unquote natural or a nature focused conception of time where like unless you're doing the super fast time lapse on the uh, on the 360 pan of Gawain in the woods you don't see you don't see the flowers bloom, right? Like you don't see the, the buds open. You don't see spring arrive. You like open your eyes one day and spring, um, spring has arrived, right? And, uh, the more, uh, you know, the older you get, the more springs you see arrive like that, the, the more, of a, ironically, the more of a surprise it seems when it, when it, uh, you know, when it finally comes, when it, when it finally shows up and, and sort of thinking about death in that, in that particular way, sorry to bring it home to, to, to one of the, one of the themes of the movie, thinking about death in, in that, in that particular way from like, um, from a, a sort of a young, a youthful perspective of like, oh, when will anything happen? Uh, to a more kind of aged perspective of like, oh no, I know, I know what's going to happen. I know I'm going to blink my eyes and it's, it's going to happen somehow when I'm, you know, when I'm not paying attention. And that's, that's, you know, very scary. That's really terrifying. And, and that, um, I don't know, was preserved sort of throughout the, preserved throughout the, 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 the whole film, you know, um, so anyway, that, yeah, it was a uh, it was good observations about the music. I thought uh, that you. Made. Thank you, thank you. Can I ask you guys a question? What sure. was up with the naked army of giant CGI women? Well, that's <laughs> it's another that's another thing that's very seventies about this movie is that it has a naked army of giant CGI women. Well, you guys were telling me that this movie was conceived when the director was making a diorama with his Willow action figures, right? (laughs) I believe that is, yeah, IMDb, if IMDb is to believe, that is accurate. Well, I will tell you. (laughs) Sorry, yes? I I was just going to say, like, there's an interview out there. This is improbably and delightfully the truth. Yes, I believe this is true. Well, I'll tell you what. I had a bunch of sisters growing up, and I had a bunch of action figures. And, you know, those action figures were constantly in the general company of a whole bunch of relatively gigantic naked Barbies. 
with their heads off or their legs missing, <laughs> just like strewn about. <laughs> so I think that's the hint that we're actually in an action figure cinematic universe or a doll. You can call them dolls if you like. <laughs> hmm. I mean, I think I think I think it's supposed to be it's supposed to be uh, Welsh or Irish, right? Like that's supposed supposed to use the wrong term, but it kind of felt like. He was pulling from other stories that might have had something to do with the general place that Gawain Gowan was passing through. Right. Because that's that's why St. Winifred is there, because the poem mentions that he goes by the well of St. Winifred. Like it's it's he goes. Oh. It's one place. Yeah. It's but named, they're like, oh, yeah. What but it's, what, it's, it's half happened. a line. It's na- it's yeah. just name checked. It's not an episode. It's like, you know. Yeah. But yeah. You think, yeah. I thought it was um, to, to me, it was kind of like the function of it functioned. Um, like the meeting with the Ents in the Two Towers. You know, it's like this thing kind of in the middle of the story where you realize that you're in a world that is sort of older and more mysterious than you thought. And that, you know, th- that there are these, there are these beings that inhabit this world, um, that are kind of outside of your, outside of your vision, um, day to day. You don't giants even. Giants in the sky. <laughs> there are big, tall, terrible, scary, carnivorous, cannibalistic giants in the sky. Actually, that's not different. <laughs> oh, jeez. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's fairy tale, man. There's giants in the, it did, this did feel like Shadow of the Colossus in certain ways also, if you're familiar um sure yeah yeah, yeah. like yeah. ride a horse around alone for a while uh you know fight a giant creature be sad that's a yeah. <laughs> a plus game design no i mean it was but it's different but it also they <laughs> they like they're uh in communication with the fox uh Gawain gets a fox. The the fox from the fox hunt in the poem is, you know, is like uh, kind of transformed into his animal sidekick. Um, Yeah. Well, so it's really interesting. This is, I think, one of the places where having read the poem helps you the most with the movie, because like we can we can uh, I, I can see the point that the hunting scenes are just sort of very detailed descriptions of hunting. But I will argue about the fox one because the fox one is like very much told from the point of view of the fox. Uh, and like you're sort of on the fox's side. And then it that, like is intercut with the, the lady's most aggressive attempt to seduce Gawain. And I feel like you would have to like it, if you've ever interpreted literature in your life, like if you've sat in an English class and been told like what that's supposed to be like, you're going to think like, oh, I get it. Gawain is the fox, right? So then going into the movie, when suddenly he gets a, an animal companion and it's a fox, th- that seems to make a lot more sense than I think someone who had come into the movie without looking at the poem would would probably think about it. Yeah, I, I will say there. I, I did get one thing out of the hunting scenes, and this is from the poem. It's not in the movie at all uh, that I guess I wanted to share, um, which is that and when you say, OK, Gawain is the fox in the third hunting scene. Right. Uh, the idea being that it's intercut with the seduction scenes. Right. The seduction scenes and the hunting scenes are back to back. They're both very fun and thrilling. Um, but they're of sort of, they have they're sort of encased. Right. Yeah. Like you get the beginning of the hunting scene, then the seduction scene, then the end of the the hunting yeah. scene, I think, in all three cases. One thing that really struck me, I think this was the first one, which is the one where they describe the butchery 
That's that the, the, the deer? deer. Yeah. Yeah. So when they're describing the butchery, they're to, and I'm not, I'm not speaking figuratively. I mean, like they butcher, they cut the deer up into bits, right? Because they're going to eat it um, or salt it down or transport it or whatever. Um, and, and so they describe what it's like to cut apart the deer. And I'm, I'm amazed at the intricacy of the connectors, right? That are in the body of the deer that are being described, right? It's, it's almost like if this technology were lost and all you had with this poem, you'd figure out how to butcher a deer again. And what it recalls to me is the section earlier on the pentacle, which is a big symbol that is introduced early in this poem and then just sort of let to ride, right? It's like this symbol is really important and it never comes up again, which is this idea that Gawain carries a shield on, on the inverse of it is the Virgin Mary, which he looks at when he feels scared. Right. And on the outside is a, <laughs> a yeah, which I mean, who doesn't do that? Right. Uh, <laughs> like <laughs> I know that on my uh, on my DM screen in Dungeons and Dragons, it's just a picture of the Virgin Mary for when I don't know what to do. And I'm like, thank you for interceding on my behalf with these fools who keep murder hoboing everybody around them. But no, uh, I actually don't DM. It's, that's all fiction. But the point being that um, the exterior is a five pointed star, right, which what you might call nowadays a pentagram, but which is described in the poem as a pentacle. And how it's described is as a they even call it the the endless knot, right, which you would think of as being either the Celtic knot or the karmic knot. Right. Um, in terms of what we would think of now in in, you know, earlier medieval or ancient symbolism for like endless knots. But what it's supposed to represent is all of the interlocking virtues and obligations of, you know, not of, of knighthood, but also of kind of living a courteous and godly life. Right. And it's sort of like that you could think of it as the thing that separates us from the animals. Most put most simply. Right. Uh, is is all of these bonds. It's the it's the symbol of Ned Stark. Right. <laughs> like I'm going to keep my word and I'm going to take care of my family. Right. And I'm going to, you know, when I have to fight a war, I'm going to go do it. And when I have to die, I'm going to go do it. Right. Um, it's all of these 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 bonds that these knights have in their lives. Uh that are their ideal. It's not the ones they have in their lives. It's their ideal. And so I thought it was interesting that Gawain's knighthood is depicted and described as this unbreakable, infinite, recursive knot. But the bodies of the animals are described as knots that can very readily be untangled, right, and cut apart, right? Because you could go to this joint and this joint and this joint, even at a point where I guess you could consider through the seduction, Gawain's knighthood is they are looking to tear him apart, right? They're looking to take apart his vows. They're looking to take apart his vow of courtesy. They're looking to have him violate, you know, the the appropriate treatment of a guest, you know, whatever sort of vow of chastity he has, if that's even a thing, I don't even know, right, um, at this point. But he certainly isn't supposed to be having sex with this lady who's married, right? Um, and uh, but yeah, like just like like. Either it's either the idea that it's both probably, but either the idea that the body is breakable, even if the higher notions to which we might appeal can be conceived of in their platonic ideal, right, can be thought of in a way that is unbreakable. Um, It's the sort of dross versus the elevated or it's the the sort of uh, the, the sort of chase the night in the position of strength and what Gawain wants to be. And then what Morgana Le Fay's plot is like trying to show that he is, um, that the whole idea is to try to show and humiliate the knights by showing that they are not really everything they're cracked up to be. And what they turn out being is like a little bit less than what they were cracked up to be, but still pretty good. Right. Um, in the poem, whereas in the, in the 
in the movie, you can't do any of that because he has no honor, right? Like he, he can't conceive of the notion of honor. He even talks about it skeptically. He wants approval from his adopted dad, right? From his uncle. And he wants validation. He wants actualization. He has psychological needs. He doesn't have social needs in the same urgent uh, way, I don't think. Yeah, well, um, he he hasn't he hasn't taken vows, right? Right, 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 he, right, right. He he wants these things, but he hasn't promised to do anything. And indeed, like uh, to, to the degree that, like, there are sort of promises, um, incipient promises that people are trying to extract from him. Like Arthur wants him to be a great heroic knight. Uh, but Gowan doesn't really know how to do that. And uh, Essel is, is is her name, right? His uh, his his prostitute girlfriend. She wants him to like to to marry her and make her uh, make her his lady. And he's not going to do that. Um, but but yeah, like the the sort of the 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 vows and everything. Although it's also tied up. The thing with the pentacle is like it's also his physical body, right? Because mm. there's like five fives, and one of them is uh, his five senses, and one of them is his uh, his five fingers of his hand, and then the others are like five knightly virtues and uh, five virtues of the Virgin Mary and things like that. So there's a weird way in which like the physical body is very much a part of it, which means that that unwinding of the the deer's body ought to be ought to be distressing for Gawain, right? Even if uh, if the lady wasn't trying to get her hand down his pants as it was happening, right, right. Yeah. Do you think that the Matthew McConaughey film failure to launch would have a greater sense of artistic urgency if a giant tree man came to chop his head off at the end of it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think most Matthew McConaughey films could uh, could get a little extra juice from that for sure. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> we might uh, we might have to leave it leave it there with that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that bit of advice to Matthew McConaughey, but uh, man, this has been this has been a lot of fun. This is you know it's uh, we don't we don't often get to read the source material, you know, in in the just the uh, daily the the weekly um, rhythm of uh, of watching movies and sort of preparing material to talk about on the podcast. And this was you know this was. Um, I don't know. It was a lot of fun. Uh, and, and definitely recommend, I mean, like, uh, I recommend the film. You, I feel like you have to be in the right mood. Uh, you have to kind of want to, want to watch it. Um, watch something like this. Uh, something that is sort of alienating or <sighs> alienating that, that uses the, that uses the tools of cinema to sort of constantly remind you that you're watching, uh, uh, an artifact rather than to kind of constantly anesthetize you, uh, in, in the way that a lot of contemporary commercial cinema does. But the, the, um, the poem is just metal AF and you should just read, uh, for fun. Um, you know, one afternoon at the beach or something I, there it's, it's, it's Labor Day. Maybe you've had your last beach afternoon but uh if if you uh live near a beach go to the beach and bring that beachiest of beach reeds sir gawain and the green knight with you i promise <laughs> i promise you won't be you won't be disappointed all right let's uh let's leave it there thanks very much for listening thanks uh to jordan for joining thanks pete as ever for podcasting and uh we'll be back next week with more overthinking a podcast where we subject the popular culture. Oh wait, no, what do I, what do I, what do I do? Until uh, then visit us. Oh, we'll be back next week, but until next week, visit us on the West. Sorry. In my head, I was trying to, to put together a, uh, an alliterative version of this and it just didn't, <laughs> I couldn't, I, I couldn't, I couldn't conceive of the, of the, the cantos I'd speak. Um, the, uh, the <laughs> back next week till then visit us on the web at overthinking it.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny 
it, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve. Definitely doesn't deserve. Ah, uh, could have could have done it after all. <laughs> the the uh, the count count the culture's qualities that it definitely doesn't deserve. Or um, <laughs> you never explained a literary verse, Matt. Do it right now. Oh sure. <laughs> well.